Amen. Thank you. We're in Joshua 10. Uh, last week, we initiated the uh, conquest. Joshua and the Israelites conquering the southern end of Canaan. Uh, the black line is uh, the Canaanite cities that we looked at. And then uh, as uh, the orange being Israel chasing them down to the south there at uh, Makeda, where the kings all hid in the cave, and then Joshua sealed the cave. They did the work of conquering these cities. And so now we're at verse 28. We'll complete the southern uh, conquest uh, for the time being with Joshua, and then we'll go to the north and maybe even cover the, uh, much of the north uh, conquest. Verse 28, let's read for a while, and then we'll come back and look at the, uh, talk about what's happening. Verse 28, as for Makeda, uh, Joshua captured it on the day, on that day, and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the, King of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. So now we just have a series of uh, cities. So it goes from Makeda to Libna, and then these verses just kind of cover the next city. And the Lord gave it also. And its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it. He left nothing remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. Uh, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. So they come, the green line, they come to help, and that doesn't bode well for them. Then Joshua and all Israel, verse 34, with him passed from Lachish to Eglon. And they laid siege to it and fought against it. They captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he'd done to Lachish. Joshua and all of Israel went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir, Deber, 
however, however you want to pronounce that, and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its town. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done at Hebron and Libna and its king. So he did in Deborah. Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breached just all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. They... Uh, and so here is the southern conquest. They all right, so they came across here and captured Jericho and then AI, and now they've gone down here and have captured all this. So what they did is they cut Canaan in half across this uh, line across Jericho and all those cities they've taken. Uh, they even go, went to Gaza and Kadesh Barnea, according to, uh, according to the scriptures here at the end of 10. And now they've gone back home to Gilgal. They are uh, back at the camp there at Gilgal. Uh, they're in the Jordan Valley. Now verse uh, chapter 11. Uh, what? It sounds like they went from the river to the sea. Uh, yeah, I'll let you teach that. From the river to the sea. They did as they were supposed to. What's that? Yes, no humanitarian pause. We'll get there. Uh, uh, well, let me read you. Let me see. I have it in my notes here. Here's what. Uh, no, that's not it. Deuteronomy 30, I think it is. Let me see. We, uh, we'll get there in a minute, Danny. I'll give you a time frame. I have it here somewhere. I know it's in my notes. I just don't see it right this second. It's a while. Uh, we don't know exactly how long this is. We know how long God tells the, the Israelites it will take to conquer all of it, to do their business. So... Um, the geographical boundaries are here. Uh, we're at, okay. Let's see. No, that's the north. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, we'll, when we get to, if we were to go th to judges, we would see that some of this, these cities are still giving them trouble. Um, there's some language that's different. Uh, uh, we, we know that since they went back to Gilgal, they're not really planning on occupying this place. As they came down, if you remember, if you've been here, as they came down this way, as they were uh, uh, chasing the Gibeonites down all the way to uh, Makeda and 
Ezekiel up there, uh, some of them made it into their fortified cities, and, and Israel just passed them by. Okay, and so the uh, language Joshua takes the south, but it's a word that just uh, uh, it's not the same as driving them out. So there is uh, they'll have to deal some more with the south. And that's why there's Canaanites in the south when we get to Judges uh, in the next, the next book, the next, as the time moves on. But they did take it, take these cities. No, no small job to do that. Uh, and this is the initial conquest of Canaan, that God, of the land that God had promised to them. Uh, they didn't have a lot of control over these cities because as as I say, they go back to Gilgal and kind of regroup as they're now about to start the northern campaign in chapter 11. So let's go to chapter 11, and, and we'll change our locale. Uh, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Joe. Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nafor, Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, in the hill country, and the Hivites, and the under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came in the camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So, the, notice here, this is the Dead Sea. This is down south of Israel. This is the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River going up. And now as we look at the cities of the north, here's the Sea of Galilee right here. So the, the Dead Sea is down lower. So we've moved completely uh, north uh, of where all the other events. So the, they've cut across down here uh, to seal off the south. And now these northern folks with Hazor right here is the king who's sort of the leader. Hazor's the, uh, apparently the big city, and he has now made another alliance. Remember, they made alliance in the south, and it did them no good. Well, he, he calls all of these folks, as we just read, and they're coming up, and they, this is up in the hill country, and they meet at Merom, uh, verse... Uh, they, they meet at Merriman, verse 5, to fight against Israel. Uh, so Hazor uh, establishes this uh, alliance, these armies against Israel. Uh, like the sand on the seashore, he list, we, we read through those cities. Numerically and technologically, Israel's in trouble. Right, chariots, they don't have chariots. They don't have horses yet. Uh, they, they're way, they're surely way outnumbered. So numerically 
these folks, these northern Canaanites are, are, uh, are advantaged. They have advantage on them. Uh, and they gather at uh, Merom, verse 5. Look at why. And all the kings joined their forces and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Those folks, yes. Concentrated them all in one place. It did put them all in one place. Uh, It actually put them in a bad place. Because their chariots are not that effective going down the sides of the mountains. Yes. And plus God is going to have them do something with the horses also. But that's a good point, Warner. They're all there for them. They don't have to go city to city as much. Um, but there's a lot of detail here as he builds the story of, um, it's kind of like, you know, well, no, that's not a good analogy, but he's building the story to show how um, vulnerable Israel really is. Um, it's kind of the way God does things in, in his word, right? Uh, uh, Here's what Dale Ralph Davis says. The Bible wants to impress our imaginations rather than merely inform our brains. For us to get a true picture of the mass of people who are enemies of God, enemies of the Israelites as they have have gathered together. And God's impressing on us this material advantage which will make his power shine more brightly, right? It'll be more glorifying. Uh, uh, and God is not, God is going to bring his glory out, but not like you and I want to bring our glory out. He is pure in his intentions, but God will be glorified. And so we have the story, uh, this detailed description. Uh, it made me think about... Uh, as we feel, as, as there's a sense of the odds against Israel, God is sending them into a hopeless situation from a human viewpoint. Um, and I thought about what Jesus said in Luke. You remember the section where three times he says, you cannot, cannot be my disciple? When he's talking about count the cost of being a Christian. You cannot be my disciple. It gives a couple of illustrations. Let me read you one. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So what Jesus is teaching, you can't be his disciple if you don't count the cost. And when kings go to war, they sit down and calculate the enemy and they respond uh, accordingly. And if they're way outnumbered, They're going to make peace so they don't go to war and get slaughtered. But this is no ordinary war here. No no ordinary king is directing this battle 
into Canaan. Right? God is the one who is directing them. The Lord's right arm. You know, we read about the strong arm of the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute. That's just kind of a metaphor. He really doesn't have an arm. Right? No, he doesn't, but he is very strong. And it's not just a metaphor that has no power and strength. Not just a picture. It's true power, and God is going to reveal himself in this. Egyptian army coming at them and they, they knew they were done because they were in a helpless position which is where God wanted them. That's That's where God wanted to save them. And, and does he not want us there too? <laughs> yes. He, he, he's got them backed up. Uh, Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. This is Moses uh, kind of preparing the people for these battles. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right? He didn't want to have a king, but if he had a king, he was not to collect horses, accumulate horses and chariots mm -hmm. and silver and gold, because then they depended on their own strength instead yeah. of the Lord. And what did they do? They sent three horses in Egypt, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. So, yes, God knows his people. He knows his people. Verse 6, and the Lord said to Joshua, all right, you got all this going on here, Josh. Uh, let's uh, talk about this. Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give all, over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So there's the two strategies. But do not be afraid. Tomorrow I will give them to you. Okay? Uh, but you're going to have to play a part here. You're going to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Now that is going to make the odds a little closer to even. Not quite, but that's going to negate their, their huge advantage of technology. The horses and the chariots. That would be the technology of the day. What is hamstringing the horses? Cut the right behind your knee. Yeah, cut it right behind the knee. The horses are useless. They can't bend their knees in the back. They can't pull the chariot. Horses are useless. Uh, yes. And I know, uh, cruel, I know, cruel. But the Lord knows what he's doing with these people. Okay? Verse 7. So Joshua and all of his warriors came. And here's the word. Suddenly, suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. Again, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say this. But as... Okay, so they're all gathered there. We'll now hear, remember, Joshua and the Israel, Israeli army. They're down here at Gilgal. Here's the Jordan River. The valley is here. They're down here in the valley at Gilgal. Well, now they immediately come up here and suddenly come upon them. Uh, what, what these armies would do, and, and I don't know. We don't know how they did it. 
But to get their chariots, we'll say, to get for Naphos' door, for door to get his to, to get his army up here, he's probably going to have left the chariots here in the foothills. Maybe. Or he'd have to take them apart to get them up the hills. That's what the armies would do if they're going to fight on top of the plateau. This is a plateau. Uh, they, 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 would, uh, uh, they would take their chariots apart and take them up with the horses and, and then put them back together, or they'll leave them down there. So suddenly, probably uh, without warning, maybe at night as they did in the south, they come upon them and defeat them up on top of the mountain, and they kind of do away with that uh, military advantage uh, uh, that, uh, that the uh, enemy has. But... Joshua responds with a strategy that God tells him to uh, use, but God says, I'll give them to your hand. We talked about this uh, last week, that God's sovereignty does not mean we need to be passive. They had to go hamstring the horses, and they had to go burn the chariots uh, down. So if God ordains our efforts are ultimately useless and irrelevant, but we're called to be faithful, and God says, go hamstring them. He's going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to give them into the hand, but he's going to use his means, the means of his own people. So Joshua knew they couldn't just let go and let God. I mean, you know, that would be some views, in particular those who are... Uh, who. who God's sovereignty grates against them. You, you Calvinists, you, you folks who believe in the sovereignty of God, you just, you just hang around and let God do His stuff, right? Well, Joshua knows better, uh, and uh, Joshua doesn't say let go and let God, but he kind of grab hold and then trust God and then obey His word. So sovereignty really gives us confidence to uh, encourage our efforts as we serve him. When he calls us to serve him, we're inadequate. Who is, Paul says, who's able to do this? None of us are able to accomplish what God calls us to accomplish. But God says, I will be at work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have something to do. Work out your salvation, uh, and God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he attacks Jabin's camp up by the waters of Merom in Upper Galilee, 4,000 feet up, or 3,000 to 4,000 feet up. Uh, Chariots can't maneuver. Uh, And so uh, they scatter. Let's look at verse 8. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as Sidon, the great Sidon, way up here. He says there in verse 8, as they scatter, uh, Misrephoth, Maim, east, uh, and eastward into the valley of Mizpah, way up here, Mount Hermon. And they struck them until they left None 
remaining as they go back to uh, uh, Naphoth door toward the coast. So they have uh, scattered these. Verse 9, And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chairs with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor. So he captures Hazor. You see Hazor right there, which is where the main king was of the alliance and struck its king with the sword for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Again, uh, just because God promises victory doesn't mean that they are to do nothing, uh, not to use their brain, not to work out their salvation. Uh, Then verse, and God is sufficient for it all. The Lord gave them into the hand who struck them, verse 8. Hamstringing the horses renders them useless, but more important than that, Joshua is obeying what God said for him to do. Joshua is obedient to God's word, and so they do just as the Lord said. Uh, And they're fully depending upon God, trusting fully in him. Some trust in horses, some trust or some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20, uh, verse 7. So let's go verse 11. They struck with the sword all who were in it, uh, devoting themselves to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the people of God took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded uh, Moses. So Joshua follows uh, Moses and the Lord. The Lord commands Moses. Moses commands Joshua. Joshua follows in obedience as the... uh, Model, servant of God. Moses, my servant, God speaks to. Uh, And now Joshua is the new servant or the next servant of God. And he is an example. He is an exemplary example uh, uh, for uh, the future leadership of Israel. Um, Again, seemingly vicious, three times. Verses 10, 12, look at verse 12. I don't know where you are in your Bible. It's right. All the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, 
the servant of the Lord had commanded. All the people in these cities were killed. And I know um, it seems vicious, uh, but Israel's history proves why it was so important to do that. Um, the Canaanite idolatry was contagious. And every remnant that left, that they left in Canaan, ended up polluting Israel. And so God says to kill them all. You can take the cattle. You can take the, boot, uh, the uh, 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 spoils of war. But he says to kill them. And it's, again, it sounds harsh, maybe. I don't know how you feel. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis again says, we pride ourselves on being kinder than God, uh, but only prove that we haven't a clue about what holiness is, how concerned God is for the holiness of his people. Uh, so Joshua becomes this model servant, a witness, a model leader, obedience to God that leads his people to be faithful. Um, Verse 16, we're at verse 16 now, aren't we? So Joshua took all that land, the hill country. Okay, so we got all that land. The hill country is just this spine uh, that goes, I would imagine, yeah, okay, we'll do this. Uh, the spine, this is the, you come up out of the Jordan River, the lowest place in the world. Uh, at least Jericho is the lowest city in the world, which is right here in this Jordan Valley. And then you go up onto the mountains, three to 4,000 feet high, and this plateau. So they took all the land. They took the hill country, all the Negev, which is down here, this area in the south, uh, verse 16, and all the land of Goshen and the lowlands down here, uh, and the Arabah, which is going to be down here along the Jordan River Valley, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is going to be up here, not all the way to Syria. There's Damascus, so it's going to be up here. Uh, he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. So Joshua made war a, a long time. At verse 18, uh, we, we read this in 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, and we think, wow, that was a quick. Uh, and so what God says to us, Joshua made war a long time with all of these kings. Uh, here's uh, this is Exodus 23, Danny, the passage I was looking for. I have it here. I thought it was Deuteronomy. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. So you're not going to wipe them all out immediately or the, the animals, he says, would go crazy. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So uh, it was a long, grueling process 
to battle these uh, Canaanites. And uh, God's powers at work, but in a way that calls for endurance, for uh, faithful tenacity, if you will. Um, and that's sort of God's power. How, how much of your life does God do things immediately? Versus, uh, I mean, is, aren't most of your days waking up, brushing your teeth, combing your hair if you have it, um, eating breakfast, going to work, going to school, um, and it's just ordinary day. So much of our life, right? I mean, God does break in at times in miraculous ways. But God just wants us to be faithful. And this is a long, arduous war where day by day they had to be faithful in this battle to take the land. And that's why the Hebrew author says, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Because we tend to be quitters, and we tend to want God to do things now. I don't even go to Starbucks many mornings because the line is too long. Who wants to wait for a cup of coffee? I mean, you know. So I get out of my car and walk in or something. I mean, I just... What's taking so long? I got places to be and people to see. And the Lord says, look, I got this under control. Your life is in my hands. And it's not all about you. So, uh, they made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Um, <laughs> nobody, only the Gibeonites, Gibeonites, and we don't want to mark them out as model citizens, right? They came with deceit to Israel. That's the only city that asked for mercy. Everybody else teamed up to defeat Israel. So uh, the Gibeonites were spared, and, and Joshua and the Israelites conquer all the other uh, folks. In fact, he burned down, but he only burned down Hazor, Jeremiah, Jericho and Ai, and Hazor is the only one that he burned down. He let the rest of the cities lay, I mean, they may come back and occupy. They, why would they want to burn them all down? Uh, verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For, why did none of them, why didn't any of them come? For, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So uh, the, 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 the section, the verses 19 and 20, the fearfulness of the hardening of God where he hardens their hearts. Gibeon sought peace. They did it in a deceptive way. 
but they spared, got the, they, their lives were spared. All others encountered Israel in battle. And they did so because God had hardened their hearts. Uh, Gibeon was spared. God hardened the rest so that they might not make a plea for mercy. They might be utterly destroyed. God hardened, just as he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Just as Israel is hardened, a portion of Israel is hardened today uh, uh, against their God, against their Messiah for sure. So that's his judicial hardening there in 19 and 20. It's his judgment upon their continued sinfulness. The day of grace is past for Canaan. In Genesis, uh, way back, uh, Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites, which is one of the peoples here, is not yet complete in Genesis 15. It's complete now. It's done. Uh, they uh, perpetually or persistently were idolatrous. Their iniquity was now full, and God has dealt with them in a uh, complete way, in a sense. Uh, just as it, like, just as He did with Pharaoh, God gave them over to what it was that they were desiring and wanting. Just like Romans one, God gives them over to their. Sexual immorality, and then to their homosexuality, and then to their total moral, amoral life. Uh, God gave them over. Well, that's what's happened here to these Canaanites. It was the Lord's doing that hardened them. Like I told you, when when I first read about that, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I searched and searched and searched to find where he did it first. But he didn't do it first. Well, yes, he did. In, in the biblical text, God began is the first one to harden. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart some more. And God hardens his heart. And fa- but he had spent his entire life before uh, in total rebellion against the one true God. That he knew there was one true God. Right? Nobody taught him in in Egypt, probably. But God taught him with the moral law on his heart, even though it was twisted. And the creation, he could see the invisible attributes of God. Pharaoh could, even from Egypt, as he was worshiping the sun and whoever else, whatever else. uh, Without excuse. We were without excuse. The Amorites, the Canaanites, without excuse. Yes. <laughs> and again, I, Dale Ralph Davis is just so good. It's a little short commentary. He says, don't think you can escape this God who hardens hearts by running into the New Testament. You will meet the same God there. It'd be better just to tremble and worship. Uh, uh, so, yeah. And verse 21, the last three verses, very interesting intriguing as we've summarized in two chapters the this current conquest of Canaan now there's more to it but in this summary of the 
cutting the, uh, the nation in half, and now he's conquered the north, having conquered the south. Now he summarizes it, and the last three verses, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the uh, hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Um, what cities, what people does that have to do with? Gaza, Ashdod, and uh, what's the other one? Gath. The Philistines, right? The Philistines. Gath. Gath uh, 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 seems to me Goliath was probably an Anakin. Uh, one of the just giant men, you know. How, what was he, nine foot or something? Uh, anyway, big, big man. But he's from Gath. And part of these Anakim that were left, there weren't any in Israel. All of them were killed. According to this, there were none... As Anakim left in, the in the, left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Well, in chapter 12, I mean 13, land still to be conquered. See, uh, we have here what I have is the green is the borders of the promised land from Numbers 34, where it lists the borders, okay? And then they took this land coming up, and the three, two and a half tribes uh, took this part of the land, and they maintained that. So this, this is the land that God had promised them. This is the land, uh, the gray is the land there occupied by Reuben and Gad. Now, uh, well, I'll get it in a second, I guess. Me and my uh, youngest granddaughter painted a picture. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> this is just the best I could do. Okay, the green outline is the land that God outlined in, in numbers for them to take. The red is what they've taken so far. So they have not, they have not taken all of these other places yet. Verse, in fact, verse 13, the land still to be conquered, or chapter 13, the land still to be conquered. So it's the business is unfinished, but that seems to be all God has called Joshua to do at this point in time. He's done all, uh, I mean, you know, all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance. All that, for the time being, the land has rest from war. But you see, there's still a lot of land left to be taken. And they need to finish the job. Because these folks have not been... There's been something in, in Gaza. We, we saw that there was something in Gaza and down here in Kadesh Barnea. 
but they haven't taken it. And, and so all this, all, all this is still uh, unconquered, if you will. Uh, so, uh, but God's people don't need to fear, right? I mean, the Anakim were feared, and Joshua took care of them. Uh, 40 years before Israel was sure God couldn't even help them. Uh, uh, and yet uh, they were fearful. They were terrorized by them. Joshua cut them off. Uh, it's like you remember Pilgrim's Progress where he's a uh, pilgrim Christian is going up to Palace Beautiful, I think, looking for a night's sleep. He, and, and as he's going to the front desk, there's those two lions right at the, right at the pathway as he's going up. And, um, and, and what Bunyan says there, there's these two lions, but Christian doesn't know they're on chains to restrain them, and so he's safe to walk right through. And... Uh, with that, you know, think about, uh, I think it's Derek Thomas in his uh, exposition of Pilgrim's Progress, he uh, says that's kind of how we live. We can't see the chains of the things that we end up fearing when we walk with the Lord. The Lord has the restraints, and we don't see the chains. So we need to trust him. Remember the Anakim, that, what, what got the spies in trouble is they came up from Kadesh Barnea up to spy out the land. Remember the spies who went up and 10 of them came back with a bad report because the people were so big. And God judged them for that. They were terrorized. They were afraid of the Anakim. Joshua just takes them down, cuts them off with the Lord's help, of course. So we have nothing to fear in the Lord. Our fear, God's people have no need to fear. Right? The Lord is with us, come what may. Anything? We'll go to chapter 12 next week. The king, king's defeated by Moses, so a recap of history, and then we'll go into the land not conquered, so we have a lot to cover. Uh, we're halfway through with Joshua. Any comments, any questions, any helps? Somebody? Yes, Danny. Where do you believe they came from? Like, do you have any like, thoughts on that? The, or, the origin of the giants? Like, where do they come from? Yeah, I we have very, very little. In fact, I chase the Anakim all through. They show up in Numbers. Uh, they show up in Genesis 6, 4. I don't think they're what many people think, that they're, you know, ange half angelic, half human. But the, but the Anakim are mentioned in Genesis 6, 4. And then, then they don't mention, they're not mentioned until the spies are afraid of them. And then we have this Joshua passage. Uh, and, and we'll run across, it's in the rest of Israel history, 
but uh, no, no origins or anything that I know of. Hereditary. Yes, sir. Over 20 years, I've noticed small kids. Uh-huh. All the kids that really grown, they seem like they're part of the Nephilim, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, all our kids. You're getting smaller, right? Yeah. Getting shorter. Every day. <laughs> We're getting shorter. That's right, James. You and I are getting shorter. All right. Anything else? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that our times are in your hands. Lord, we thank you that our times are not in our hands. We need help as we think about the circumstances of our lives. Help to trust in you. Help, Father, when we think we know so much better how things should go. Not so much better do we think than you think, but we just think our lives should go better. And Father, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for strength to be faithful, even in the daily tasks that we uh, perform day after day after day. And we thank you for every Uh, day of life you give us, every uh, hour, every moment. And we pray to be faithful like Joshua, not to look at ourselves and not to look at our circumstances, but to look to you and hear you in your word, to take your word for what it says And then, Lord, by your Spirit, depending on you completely, working out our salvation in fear and trembling that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.